At this point in our pledge month, which actually ends today, as I anticipated, we have heard from about 60% of our regular givers. I say I anticipated because it's human nature to take your time. And I'm often guilty of that myself. But I'm glad to report that the 60% of our regular givers we've heard from have pledged in excess of 70% of our total goal. So we're confident that with the pledges that will be turned in in this, the final week, and in the weeks ahead, because you certainly can turn those in at any time, we will comfortably meet the goal that we believe God has set before us. And I want to encourage your participation, again, not because of the capital, but because of the increased faith. Every week, I receive unsolicited testimonies from what God is doing in people's lives through this process. Here's a sample of one that came in this week. Working and praying through our pledge was a really powerful process for us. It was impactful to our marriage and our financial mindset. We saw God at work. We saw Satan trying to disrupt that progress. And we saw God win the battle. Now that's a couple with a deeper faith and even an improved marriage as a result of doing a spiritual exercise together. So again, if you haven't had opportunity, please take that opportunity over the coming weeks. If you have questions, as Pastor Blaine will say later, contact us. We're here to answer any questions that you might have. Well, now we're going to return to our study of the minor prophets. And today, we'll actually conclude that study. The assignment God gave to those men was a tough assignment. It was not for the faint of heart because they were called to reveal God's heart to their contemporaries and to us. And that meant that in addition to announcing God's amazing grace and his equally amazing faithfulness, those men had to announce God's loving principled anger and his equally loving judgments. And as the prophet Zechariah learned, that can get you killed even in church because that's where they killed him. Now the prophet whose words we're going to study today was named Malachi. It's not Malachi. He was Hebrew, not Italian. If he was Italian, his message probably would have been forget about it. And Malachi received a rather frigid reception, to say the least. And that reminds us that humanity's professed passion for truth is often little more than empty posing. Because despite the clear-cut affirmation of the historic event known as the resurrection... Whenever God's truth is announced, it's often met with calloused indifference or stiff resistance. And Malachi encountered both of those things. And in response to that, he spoke some words that we need to hear. Because as believers in this cultural setting, we are increasingly tempted to whisper the gospel or to fall silent altogether before a world that interprets our certainty as bigotry. And we hear that charge often. 
Now, fittingly, the important words that Malachi left to us were not his own. He quoted God directly. In Malachi 3.6, here's what the Lord said. For I, the Lord, do not change. Today I want to speak to you on the courage of certainty. Let's pray together. Father, we have a great privilege today. First, we're privileged together in religious freedom to declare the gospel of Christ without fear of reprisal. Thank you for that great freedom. And I pray that we would be good stewards of it. But we also have the privilege of opening your life-changing word. Your heart captured in print. And every time we encounter your word, we have your promise. It's going to have an effect upon our life. So we thank you for that privilege. As we entertain your word today, I pray that your spirit would enable me to proclaim it and teach it faithfully. And I pray that your spirit would enable every one of us to hear our next step of faith and pursue it passionately. As always, we're praying these things because of what Christ did. We're praying in his name and we're praying for his honor. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice together as a community, may the Lord be with you. If I were writing a song or a poem or a rap about Malachi, somewhere in that I would refer to him as the prophet before the blank page. Here's why. In most Bibles, Malachi's final words are followed by a page that introduces the New Testament on the front and is blank on the back side. And I find that unintentionally symbolic because Malachi's words constitute the last prophetic utterance of the Old Covenant era, of the Old Testament. And his writing was followed by 400 years of unbroken silence. Nothing more was written at God's command or spoken at God's command until the arrival of John the Baptist and Messiah Jesus. So Malachi essentially recorded God's final words until the word finally became flesh. Now that blank page that follows Malachi reminds us of something that humanity is prone to forget. Those who reject God's word invite his silence. Because God's only obligation to speak to the human race originates in his own heart. The only thing that obligates God to speak to us is his own love, his own mercy, his own grace, his own compassion, and his own perfection. God doesn't speak because he owes it to us. He speaks because he owes it to his love. So when his word is rejected, and when his love is refused, and those two go hand in hand, God may choose to go silent. And when he does, even his silence is an expression of his love. 
Because if a man or woman is determined to reject God's love, his further speaking to them would only serve to further harden their heart against him. And God won't do that. As we've seen throughout the minor prophets, there are occasions when God restrains our disobedience and then releases that restraint. But God will never add to the momentum of our disobedience. So God's silence demonstrates that God is good even to those who deny his goodness or his existence. Now you might think a prophet speaking after centuries of rejection and prior to 400 years of silence would try a different approach. Try something new in one final effort to be heard. But Malachi was smart enough to know the approach wasn't the issue. The message was the issue no matter how you approached it. So he echoed his predecessors. He talked to his contemporaries frankly about their spiritual rebellion. He warned them of the inevitable ugly consequences of that rebellion. He appealed to them to choose the path of repentance so that God could graciously restore them. But Malachi's appeals largely fell on deaf ears, proving yet again that God's work done in God's way doesn't always result in God's desired will. Like his predecessors, Malachi made it clear that God will not allow his ultimate big-picture desires to be hijacked by fallen humanity. Those things will come to pass. But Malachi also made it clear that not everything God desires along the journey will come to pass. And Jesus testified to that reality years later when he stood looking over the city of Jerusalem. And if you're familiar with the passage, you know as he stood there, in brokenness of heart, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So many times I wanted to draw you to myself, but you wouldn't have me. Jesus desired they would come to him. They wouldn't have him. Now, did their refusal prevent God's ultimate plan? No. But it did prevent the blessings that God had intended for them. Malachi's words were largely rejected because they contradicted conventional wisdom, the popular thinking of his culture. Most of his audience was in some state of rebellion against God. You could say they were on the wrong side of God's authority. And those on the wrong side of God's authority find his words demanding, threatening, inflexible, intolerant, and out of touch. Paul summarized it this way in 1 Corinthians 2. He said, to the natural man, the things of God are utter foolishness. Now, upon his frigid reception, if Malachi had been insecure, if he had been fearful, if he had been needy, 
He may have attempted to spin God's message a bit differently. He may have been tempted to gloss over the things that his audience found offensive and unacceptable. Like those who compromise God's word today, he might have suggested God didn't really mean what it sounds like, that when God said yes, he really meant no. But Malachi knew he was God's servant. He wasn't God's editor, and he wasn't God's coach. More importantly, Malachi knew that God doesn't change And since his word expresses his character and is an extension of his character, his word doesn't change. Now, some of the tactics and strategies of God revealed in his word do change. Things change from the Old Testament to the New. But God said those things were going to change, and he explained why they were going to change. But just as God doesn't change, so the word that reveals his heart never changes. So any attempt to change God's word is ultimately an attempt to change God himself. And any attempt at changing God is an attempt at changing perfection. And when you attempt to change perfection, you're destined to produce something inferior, something that is imperfect. Because if you take away from perfect, it's no longer perfect. If you add to perfect, it's no longer perfect. And that's why God has not called us to accommodate his word to the whims of fallen humanity or to edit his material to align with the desires and the demands of hollow hearts that do not contain the Spirit of God. Whether those hollow hearts and their demands are found in Harvard or Hollywood or the halls of politics or the hallways of the church. Malachi knew when you compromise God's word to appease human culture, You betray both God and human culture because you deny human culture the message of liberation that they desperately need to hear. Malachi reminds us you and I are not called to make God acceptable to a rebellious world. We're called to announce the good news that Jesus will pardon former rebels and make them totally acceptable unto God. Now, as you might expect, Malachi's courageous announcement of God's unchanging nature was met by two radically different responses. In the believing, the knowledge that God doesn't change fuels hope and certainty and courage. It means we have hitched our destiny to somebody who won't suddenly call time out and change the rules in the middle of the game. It means our growth in grace and in the knowledge of God will never prove outdated or useless. It means our rewards for faithfulness will never be lost or surrendered. It means our efforts to advance God's kingdom will never prove to be in vain. It means God's every promise to us will be fulfilled. It means what we do as a community of faith matters and will matter for eternity. 
It means any spiritual surprises that await us will be of the good variety. Now, in stark contrast, in those who refuse to believe, the knowledge that God doesn't change fuels anger and frustration because it's an unwelcomed reminder that God will not surrender the ground rules of his creation to fallen humanity. He's not going to surrender the future to the fallen. They can deconstruct Genesis line by line by line, and we're watching that happen. They can do that in favor of their own false counterfeit narrative. But God will hold on to his true narrative as the basis for everything he's going to do, including the restoration of his world and the final judgment. See, the reality is fallen humanity doesn't get to write its own final exam. God has already written the final exam, and in the Word, he's already told us the questions on the final exam. You don't have to spend your life studying for the wrong test. In the Jerusalem of Malachi's day, those who were troubled by the idea of a God who does not change fell into two groups. Those who professed faith but didn't practice it, and those who saw faith as a colossal waste of time. Those who hid from God in church and those who hid from God in skepticism. And the two groups had something in common. Both of them denied their true condition and offered up an endless series of self-justifying arguments for their belief and their conduct. Let's look at the first group. They serve to remind us that a profession of faith can either be a door into God's kingdom or a wall to protect you from it. I'm going to say that again because that's a rather odd-sounding statement in a group of people who call people to make a confession of faith. A profession of faith can either be a door into God's kingdom or a wall to protect you from it. I say that because, strange as it may sound, church is a great place for those who want to hide from God. And it's a great place for those who want to keep God at the margins of their life while they pursue their true passions and their true loyalties. Because by dabbling in matters of faith, by dabbling in the church, they still retain control of their life but they assure themselves when life doesn't go so well, they can call on God for assistance. In short, they don't want Jesus as their Lord. They just want Jesus as a resource when they need help. But as A.W. Tozer said frequently, either Jesus is Lord of all or he's not your Lord at all. People like that profess a faith that they don't practice. And there were scads of folks like that in the Jerusalem of Malachi's day. And Malachi described their behavior. He said, you guys never give God your best. You always give God your scraps and your unwanted leftovers. 
You dishonor him because your worship is sporadic. You only worship when it fits your otherwise busy schedule. Your devotion is deficient. Your worship is deficient. And whether that group realized it or not, whether they would have acknowledged it or not, the root of deficient worship is the doubt of God's love. Malachi opened his prophecy by quoting God who said to Israel, I have loved you. I have loved you. Now, Malachi also records their response, and here it was. How have you loved us? God, you say you love us? How have you loved us? They question God's love. Why would they question God's love? Because a lot of bad stuff had happened to them. And they interpreted bad stuff happening to them as evidence that God really didn't love them. Or if he did love them, he just didn't have the right stuff to show it. Now what they conveniently forgot was that almost every bad thing that had happened to them had happened to them because when they had the choice of following God or not following God, they chose to not follow God. All the bad things that happened in Israel happened because of their bad choices. Now, I'm not here to suggest every time something bad happens in your life, it's because you've made a bad choice. No, in a fallen, sin-cursed world, we're often affected by the choices of others. I get that. But in the case of Israel, all the times they were conquered, all the times they were exiled was because they chose to turn their back on God and trust in idols they made with their own hands. And when they did, the outcome was inevitable. You see, questioning God's love always indicates a serious deficiency in our faith. Because to question God's love is to make a direct attack on his character. And attacks on God's character and the questioning of God's love are modern-day versions and echoes of Lucifer's original lies in the garden. He came to Adam and Eve, said, Listen, God's not the great guy you think he is. He's not all that he presents himself to be. He's holding out on you. You need to push the envelope and find out. You need to call his bluff because he's not all that good. But despite the fact that questioning God's love is an attack on his character, we're all prone to do it. We do it when life doesn't unfold the way we would have hoped, when bad stuff happens to us, when we're disappointed, when our prayers appear to go unanswered. I think Malachi would remind us of this principle. We should never interpret God's love by our circumstances. We should remember his love in our circumstances. There's a big difference there. Okay. Something bad happens to you, that doesn't mean God has deserted you. God allowed bad stuff to happen to himself. But remember his love in your circumstances. So rather than wasting your time and energy arguing with the unfairness of life, you seek direction from the unchanging God who can show you how to be more than a conqueror even in the midst of your pain. 
You know, Scripture makes it clear that many times the antidote for doubting God's love is just improved memory. You ever notice how many times Scripture says, remember, 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 remember? Why? Because we're prone to forget, 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 forget. So how did God respond to Israel's insult? He reminded them of something. He said, guys, all those powerful empires that sought to destroy you, where are they? They're all gone because I destroyed them. But you, little weak Israel against all odds, you're still here receiving my offer of a glorious future. And you say, I don't love you? No, there's ample proof I do. Now, the second group that Malachi addressed were the skeptics, the people who saw faith in God as a waste of time. And just like the first group, their spiritual descendants are still with us, and they're very, very vocal. They reject the notion that we can be certain about God because they suggest we can't be certain about anything. That's the prevailing mantra of this culture. This week, I went to one of those quotation sites and read about a hundred or more quotations on the topic of certainty. And virtually all of them said the same thing. Virtually all of them suggested that if you're truly enlightened and if you're really tolerant and educated, then you will reject the idea of certainty. Virtually all of them suggested that certainty is a sign of weakness a sign of a flawed character. It indicates either ignorance or worse, hatred. It said persons of certainty should be shunned. Now here's the irony. Everybody who condemned certainty did so with unrestrained certainty. Like those who say there are no moral absolutes, all the while failing to realize they just made a morally absolute statement and thereby cut themselves off at the ankles. People who say, you can't be certain about anything with certainty defy logic. They contradict themselves. This is why scripture says when a culture rejects God, God gives them over to their own lies till they get to the point where they can't even recognize the insanity of what they espouse. He gives them over to their choice. He in essence says, if that's the way you want it, have at it. And I think this culture is there. They condemn certainty with certainty. Because the skepticism that rejects God exalts itself as absolute. Those who reject the notion of a sovereign God as nonsense are very comfortable with the notion of their own sovereignty. This culture has become an echo chamber of unbelief. And in that echo chamber... Those who are certain about their professed uncertainty, those who are sure we can't be sure, are applauded as enlightened, cutting-edge, and intellectual. While those of us who are certain about an unchanging God are denounced as bigots. You hear it all the time. 
But here's what we forget many times when the charge of bigotry is laid at our doorstep. A bigot, according to the dictionary, is somebody who is intolerant of beliefs different than their own. Intolerant of beliefs different than their own. Do you know what that means? That means when the topic on the table is truth, everybody's a bigot. Everybody's a bigot. Because everybody rejects what is outside their concept of truth and only embraces what fits inside their concept of truth. Everybody rejects that which is contrary to their belief system. Christians reject anything contrary to God's word. Skeptics reject anything contrary to their own convictions and the whims of culture. But both reject that which disagrees with them. So the real argument isn't who's a bigot and who isn't. The real argument is have you attached your bigotry to something that deserves it? If you've attached your bigotry to the ever-changing notions of a culture that has nothing to recommend it, then you've attached your bigotry to the wrong place. If you attach your bigotry to the unchanging God with an unmatched track record who proved everything through his resurrection, then you've attached your bigotry to the place where it belongs. But let's stop this nonsense. Everybody's a bigot. Why is it if I disagree with the skeptic, I'm intolerant and they're enlightened? <laughs> Christians, don't be intimidated by insanity. Recently on a Canadian broadcast, a, a believer was confronted by a skeptic who said, well, the message you declare as a Christian hurts my feelings. And he said, as your message hurts my feelings. And she didn't know what to say. Well, when you Christians say Jesus is the way, that hurts my feelings. And when you tell me the gospel is BS and Jesus is bogus, that hurts mine. Because nobody ever cared for me like Jesus. So don't be intimidated by this intellectual crap. It is anything but intellectual. It is anything but enlightened. It is anything but progressive. It is the same old, same old that Satan has been peddling for thousands and thousands of years. And in the face of the resurrection, how absurd it all seems. Malachi prefaced God's silence by reminding us of an important reality. God does not change. What does that mean? That means I can be certain about the things that matter the most. And if I'm certain about the things that matter the most, I can be courageous. Like Malachi, I don't need to cower before the ridiculous accusations of the world. I can announce the gospel of Christ that is the only hope of that broken world. Let's quit whispering the gospel 
because of intellectual absurdities. And let's shout the gospel to people who desperately need to hear it because we can't be certain about anything. It doesn't get anybody through the night. Let's pray together. As we're praying, this message wasn't designed to be an appeal to those who aren't followers of Jesus, but if you aren't a follower of Jesus and God has used these truths to arrest your attention and your heart, then you realize, I've been gone the wrong direction. If you'll just call out to God in the quietness of your heart, he knows your every thought. And if you ask him to forgive your sin and rebellion and change your heart, and if you'll confess Jesus as your Lord, he'll rush in and change everything, including your thinking. Because when God comes into your life, the lights come on, and you see things that the unbelieving cannot possibly see. Father, as the culture continues to degenerate, as lies now replace your truth in far too many places. I pray we would not hunker down and pray for Jesus to return. I pray that we would speak up so that he might walk into more people's lives. And I pray that in his great name. Amen. We've concluded each of these minor prophets by talking about the intersection in faith and culture, what culture says, what God would say. When you stand at that intersection, our culture says the greatest sin is intolerance. Jesus would remind you the greatest sin is to tolerate unbelief in the unchanging God. God bless you.